Thank you for listening to this previously recorded episode of GalaxyCon Live. We'd also like to invite you to check out our other shows, Rock Around the Ring, featuring music and wrestling guests, and GalaxyCon Talks Comics, all of which are available now on Facebook, YouTube, and anywhere else fine podcasts are available. Hi, welcome to GalaxyCon Live. I'm your host, Mike Broder, my co-host, Patty Hawkins. Uh, Hello, everybody. There. And we have the one and only Jonathan Franks with us. So, Jonathan, you're... Uh, you're always really, really busy. So this has got to be like a weird change for you to be home for so long. I'm actually blessed that I've been editing. I'm working on a new show for um, Imagine and Nickelodeon called The Astronauts, oddly enough, another space show. And as the quarantine was about to uh, take us all, I had just finished shooting on Friday, flew back on Saturday, and I've been home since Sunday a month ago. Oh, wow. Since I had finished shooting two episodes, I've been editing ever since, which has been a huge blessing. And you, you're editing personally? No, no. Oh, oh you're me. working with an editor. Exactly. I was going to say you're you're a director, and no. I, I thought that that was enough. No, we go old school. We go Skype, and then he plays the show. That's great. Yeah. So this this show is generally about convention experiences, and you're unique in that you've been doing these things for over 30 years. You started, I think, in 1987. You know, what did it feel like back then to enter this weird, strange world of fandom? Because that was a completely different time and place. Well, people who see me at conventions before will have heard this story, but I'll share it with you anyway. The first convention I ever did was in Syracuse, New York, and it was the winter of 19... 87 and the show I think had started that September so the audience was a very hardcore original series audience they were skeptical they were suspicious they were generally not terribly interested and completely unfamiliar with this new Star Trek that had a bald English captain with a French name and an entirely new cast they wanted their Kirk Spock and Bones Star Trek I had no idea what the, what the world I had entered was going to be like. I had no idea what the experience was going to be like. I was a nervous wreck. I, and I was waiting to go on stage to do, a, I guess, a Q&A. Uh, I was lined up in the dealer's room next to a table that was selling our action figures. The, uh, the younger, thinner version of all the The Galoob action Galoob. figures. The Galoob really, action yes, yes, I remember those well, yes. And it was a, they were selling Geordi for 35 bucks, and they had a limited dial-up data for 50 bucks, and Captain Picard was 70 bucks, or whatever, something insane. And there was a sign. There was a sign at the end of the table that said, buy any action figure, get Riker free. Yeah, I remember. I've heard, yes. You've heard the story. Yes. So I lived with that pain for 37 years, 33 years, 34 years, whatever it's been. Do you know why? You, do you want to know why? Why? You want to know why they're, why the Rikers are so cheap? <laughs> I can explain. Like, There's an actual real yeah. reason that if you don't know, this might answer your... I played with those. I was a young, much younger, thinner person back then. And, uh, That's why. The, uh, the toy boxes, the cases, uh -huh. came with everything was uh, allocated. So there were like, for every 
we'll say there were like 10 Rikers in a case, you'd get like three Geordies. Really? And so the, yeah. and there were two different datas. There was a speckled face data, and then there was another data. Right, Patty? Am I remember this right? Yeah, well, there was like four different datas because they could not get the chemical mix for the paint correct. So the speckled data is, is the holy grail of them, and I've seen pictures of it. It is quite bizarre looking. And uh, yeah, yeah. But you uh, couldn't the, get like the wharf figure. Like you couldn't get wharf because nobody, the t- Galoob in their infinite wisdom, thought that everybody was going to want the young, handsome, you know, first officer action hero and not the guy with the weird head with the with the ridges or not the, not the strange, you know, android. Also, not for nothing, Mr. Frakes, you were the most normal person in the cast at the time, so your head sculpt was the easiest to tool and to mold. So that was another factor as well. Basically, you use less plastic than anybody else. This, yes, is you were the, great, this is great information I'd never had before. You were the easy, right, 30 years of pain and misery. And it's my opening spiel at every convention <laughs> I ever do. But but that you held that pain for 30 years. And I can't believe nobody's ever come up to you and said, no, when we bought these toys, there were figures you couldn't get. Like it, was, there it was feigned pain, let's be honest. It, fair. But you know what? At least you had an action figure. Exactly. It still and, do. And you can always point to any Captain America figure and say, that's me. I could. <laughs> I have a great story about my, my son, J-Mo. I had, we had We were given all these action figures because, well, they gave us a, a copy of each thing that came out from, from marketing. So we had a bucket of action figures that their kids played with when they were very, very little. And in there were other toys, other action figures. And he took out Picard. He said, there's, uh, there's Patrick, Daddy. And there's Worf. He knew was uh, was Michael. He said, there's Michael. And then he picked up Gumby, and he said, "He said, do you work with him too, Dad?" <laughs> <laughs> I said, "Yes, I do." As a matter of fact, you should have just pulled up, you know, some of the Eddie Murphy skits on SNL, <laughs> and been like, "Well, this is the Gumby I." Uh... This is the Gumby I know. <laughs> so, what was that like? What was it like having your kid play with your toy with toys of you? I used to drown him in the bathtub, which I thought was a little telling but that was about as close as he got to the show they knew nothing about the show they had no interest in star trek and don't to this day and it's uh it's been an it i think it has been a very interesting experience to be the son and daughter of uh Riker and laura they've managed to stay sane but they seem to have no interest in what we do for a living which is kind of wonderful <laughs> that's probably a good thing yeah it really is since we are talking about the, the fan experience and stuff like that, and I, I get that little nod about the Captain America thing, could you tell our audience a little bit about your short tenure as Captain America since that was a fan-centric uh, event you were involved with? It wasn't that short. I did it for a couple no, of years. Yeah, a couple of years, yeah. I was in New York, and a friend of mine named Charlie Davis and I were dating girls from – they stayed – in the same kind of house in New York, which was the same house that used to be in that movie backstage. I don't remember what it was called, the, the something club. It was like a sorority of, of actresses, if you will. And Charlie and I met there and he was had been hired by someone to go out as Spider-Man 
to uh, open up comic book stores and Marvel on 50, 575 Madison Avenue, the eighth floor, yeah. had built him a costume. And he's, uh, he did a couple of them and he said, they're looking for a guy to do Captain America. You should go meet the people over there. So I went over there and to make it long story short, he and I ended up going out on this weird tour. We'd go out on a Friday, much like a convention, and we'd go to Omaha and we'd have a schedule. Or we'd go to Chicago. We'd have a schedule and somebody, an Andy Frayne, you know what an Andy Frayne is? Which is a uh, security cop in, in, in Chicago. They sort of do everything. And Andy yeah. Frayne would pick us up at the airport with a rented Taurus and we'd have a schedule. We'd go to a 7-Eleven, then we'd do a comic book store, then we'd go to a supermarket. And we'd, we'd be every 20 minutes, we'd have to be somewhere. And we'd have these, you know, space suit on. We'd pull up a block away and I'd get on the hood of the car. First of all, I'd take the garbage can lid that had the big A on it <laughs> yeah. out of the thing. I'd grip her on the two uh, wings that Captain America has on his cowl, as you probably remember, which were you know, grippers. Yeah. I'd hold the garbage can lid. I'd stand on the hood of the car and I'd ride into the parking lot of the 7-Eleven. On the Taurus. On the Ford Taurus with the Andy Frank guy driving the wheel. <laughs> it was a very glamorous time. <laughs> and we made 50 bucks a day. And Charlie, to his credit, said, you know what? We got to call Stan Lee and tell him we deserve more money. So he called Stan. Or he called Stan's people and he got us sixty bucks a day. Nice, nice. There we go. That's that's what you, you know. Uh, you got more money than Stan Lee. I I bow to you and your friends, boy. I that's you have led a blessed life, sir. You might be the first. The high point of that entire, or two high points of the Captain America experience. One was we were working at a comic book convention in New York City, and Bobby. Columby, who was the drummer from Blood, Sweat, and Tears, is a huge, or was a huge Star Trek fan. Somebody from his management or something was at the comic book convention and said, Blood, Sweat, and Tears is playing tonight at the Metropolitan Opera House. Is there any way you guys could come? We'll pay you. What's your rate? We said, well, it's 50 bucks. <laughs> so... Charlie and I finished the comic book convention, which was some down probably near Madison Square Garden. We suited up and we went to the Met <laughs> and we ran down the aisles and got on stage with Blood, Sweat and Tears. And it's at this event that I realized the advantage of being Captain America as opposed to Spider-Man was at the after party, if you will. This is mid late 70s. The after party was somewhere in Lincoln Center outside of the Met with blood, sweat, and tears, cocktails, food. Captain America, because he wears a cowl like this and this and this, has could a drink. mouth. He could drink, and Spider-Man couldn't drink. <laughs> and Charlie brings that up to this day. <laughs> Little known facts. This is you don't get this kind of detail at a regular convention. No, you don't. <laughs> no, sir. No, now, sir. when's the last time somebody asked you about your Captain America days? It comes up periodically. It is a, uh, it's kind of a 
it's been buried. It's not buried, but it's uh, information that few people have, and they're always surprised. Oh, the second Captain America story, which has got some kind of what is the word I'm looking resonance, mm-hmm. was that we were invited, and this was with Stan Lee, by the way. Ooh. And by this point, they had a Hulk and a Wonder Woman. I think I don't know who, but they had a bunch of a bunch of us, and we were Might invited. Firestar. Firestar. No. 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 no, I've seen the Hulk because it had that yeah. like the rubber yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And a very dirty face. Oh, God. Yeah. This is on the internet. This is a great Google picture that you'll find. We were invited to the Rosalind Carter, President Carter's wife and their daughter, at an environmental awareness lawn party at the White House, to which we were invited and Stan and the Hulk and security. It was wild and memorable. But it's a picture uh, that lives in infamy somewhere. That, is this on the internet? Yes, I've seen it. There's a group shot and everybody's posed and stands kind of in the middle. And Rosalind Carter and little and Amy Carter's a baby. She's like six. They're in the picture with us. It was Spider-Woman. Spider-Woman. It was Spider-Woman, the Hulk, and there was a thing. And apparently, according to Stan Lee's, uh, Stan Lee did his graphic novel biography in collaboration with Peter David, and he talks about that day. He talks about how Amy Carter was apparently quite scared of the Spider-Man character. Oh, really? To the point no. where she was, it, was. Was it Spider-Man? Oh, there it is. He's got it. That's wow. Or no, it was, it was Green Goblin. That's right. It was Green Goblin. Green Goblin. Yes. She was genuinely frightened at first of Green Goblin. And apparently the Secret Service began to get nervous. And Stan had to say, no, no, no. He's just a guy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> it's just a Green Goblin. <laughs> Yeah. Is that the Green Goblin holding her? Yes. Yes, so she warmed up to him at the end. So there's Charlie on uh, picture right, and there's me on the picture left. And is that Lou Ferrigno? No. <laughs> Who's that big guy? Yeah, it looks... Behind Rosalyn. Oh, yeah. Kind of looks like Lou. And who's the woman with the black hair? What That's Spider-Woman. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah, Spider-Woman. And then behind Spider-Man, the orange dude is the thing. I remember the thing from the Fantastic Four. Yes. I, that looks like the same costume they used on the SNL sketch. The big kind of plasticky, cardboardy one. So, wow. Boy. Look at that garbage can lid with the big star on it. You wielded it proudly, sir. And I did. on behalf of, uh, as a Marvel fan and as a geek and as an American, I thank you. <laughs> Glad to be of service. Always, always. You, you uh, Barry Boswick and Alan Ruck coming up this week? Yes. Oh, have you watched Succession? No, not yet. Ruck is a genius. Yeah? Boswick's a genius anyway. I just had him on Girlfriend's Guide to Divorce. Both of them are fabulous. I, I've, I've never met Alan. I mean, I think Barry's brilliant. I, I love Barry. Yeah. And Barry, apparently, they're like really, really good friends. I did speak to Alan Ruck once on the phone at a convention my former Miami show that I sold mm-hmm. last year when I went there, I didn't own it anymore, but I was there. Somebody calls my phone and they go, hello, I'm, you know, this is Alan Ruck. And I go, he, he goes, I'm, you know, you might know him. I'm an actor. You might know. I said, I, I, I know who you are. I'm very <laughs> familiar with who you are. And I go, how did you get this number? And he goes, well, Barry lost his phone and somebody was nice enough to pick it up. And yours was the last number that he had called. Oh. So I figured you might know how to get the phone back to him. That's a fantastic story. 
So, but that's been my only experience with Ruck. There's Captain America. Look at that work. Look how skinny I was. Yeah. I, that mm. was like my experience when I played Santa Claus in the same era in the 70s. Kids would say, you don't even look like Santa Claus. What are you doing? And I, I had the, the dubious honor of being Santa Claus at Lord & Taylor on 33rd and 5th Avenue. Yeah. In which there was no toy department. So, oh, so God. Santa Claus was in the fucking luggage department on the <laughs> second floor of Lord <laughs> Taylor. <laughs> it's a gla- I have a glamorous career, let's face it. Go across the street at Macy's, you'll find it there. Oops, I can't say that. Whoa, look at that. Big this is the image they use for the promotion to sell you. This was the main catalog image that if you wanted to rent the Marvel superheroes, this is what they promoted. Yeah, that doesn't look like me, though. Might not be you. I don't think it is me. And I also don't think that's the shield I used. Well, the I other think. one was you. That's you. For sure. Now, let's see the other one. Might be a different shield. What's What's really interesting about that image, though, is that Captain America is at the forefront when, at that time, Spider-Man was really the, the kind yeah. of face character of Marvel. So... Yeah, this was this was taken probably in Central Park. It looks like on that yeah, those rocks, yeah, right? That, I don't yeah, that's think, one of those big rocks in the park. I don't think that's me or Charlie actually. So it might be before you. It might be these guys quit and they need they need replacements, or they could have been the ones who came after. But that Hulk, if you saw that Hulk coming down the street, yeah. that's that's interesting. So funny life. Speaking of long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. When I before this stream, I, I found a video of you. I'm not going to show it, but I found a video of you online from like an early convention, and I guess it was right after you guys had wrapped the first season, right. and you had grown in a beard. And you say in the thing that the one good thing about being you know wrapped is that you know you can grow out your beard. Oh, so it's uh, apparently something you've kept with you a very long time. You you like having the facial hair there. Well, that leads to another good story, or story. You be the judge. After the first season, there was a writer's strike. And during that writer's strike, I didn't shave. A lot of people didn't shave, just like during the uh, quarantine, the COVIDs. There were a lot of beards coming out. And when the writer's strike was resolved, we were invited to a meeting with Roddenberry and Rick Berman and Patrick and Brent myself i don't remember who else was there but roddenberry saw my beard and liked it and liked it a lot and what he decided was that i've told this story too too many times as well roddenberry said we'll keep the beard it'll be decorative he said he said it looks nautical i said oh great so my nautical decorative beard was maintained thanks to gene roddenberry's approval and in the Urban Dictionary, do you know what the definition of Riker's beard is? I have no idea. Mike, this is a big day. Okay. The I'm definition ready. of Riker's beard. I'm writing this down. Is the opposite of jumping the shark. Oh. Meaning the show got good when that character of Riker got a beard. Now, did you have it in the second season or did it come in the third? In the second, second season. Okay. Yeah. After the strike. Yes. We got rid of Gates McFadden, and I got a beard. 
<laughs> we replaced one beard with the other. <laughs> the the Diana Mulder year. Yeah. Yes. When you were doing, you were still doing conventions at this time. When you said, and early on, you began, you felt the maybe not animosity, maybe suspicion from the original Trek fans. When did you begin to see it change in convention appearances? When did you feel like you may have turned the corner? Okay, they finally like us now, like wholly and fully, besides the angry neckbeards in the back who are still holding the grudge. I don't think it was until second or third year when the show really got good. And remember, we did 26 a year, so that was a lot of, yeah. you know, that's 50, 60 shows in. They, they realized there was room in their worlds for, for both shows. Yeah. And then... Paramount, in its wisdom and greed, produced Voyager and Deep Throat Nine and Enterprise, and it went on and on. And then we shut down, and they shut down, and J.J. kept it under wraps until he produced the movies, which were wonderfully received and didn't seem to have the same sort of resentment about being the new Trek. But my friends at Discovery, which I was privileged to be part of and still am, there was a similar vibe when that show came out. People, mm -hmm. they didn't want to have find room in their hearts for another Star Trek, which there clearly is. And one of the reasons that that was not a factor in the launching of Picard was that the hardcore fans loved Picard and were inclined to look forward to the show and look forward to having him and look forward to whatever story because they knew him and they knew who he was. And I think the familiarity with all fandom, it's its so important that it's like the canon of these shows. It, they they want a touch world. point. They want a touch point, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And it's important. And, and oh. it clearly worked. Because well, Picard I, was wonderful. Go ahead. Picard was a great show. It, I was watching it as it was coming on, and, and it's but it's a very different kind of Star Trek. It's oh, a very... Right, like this is a more modern take on it, and it's a very different story. And this is more of a you know a full you know multi episode you know. But there are still some fans that are old, old, old fans that are still putting up their nose at it and being like, "This isn't real Star Trek because it doesn't have this or that yeah. or the other." But and I watch it. They, yes, they watch. It. <laughs> and I they're go, watching. They're watching to make sure they hate it. And I'm like, look, I don't know what you want anymore. It's, you know, it's 2020. Yeah. It's, it's got, it's got, it's got Patrick in it. It's Star Trek. Oh God. And he's never been better. He's spectacular no. in the show. I, I, I will have to say both in, both in front and behind the camera, you certainly accredited yourself in Picard as well. That was a thrill to be asked back as an actor. Nerve wracking, but a, a, a thrill. I thought, frankly, I wish Marina was with us. I thought Marina was astounding in the episode when uh, Patrick came to our home in the Pont. Yeah. yeah. Spectacular. It, it was a great episode. And the fact that you guys come, you know, it's, you haven't seen either of your characters in so many years and there's this whole different life. You're out of Starfleet. You're, you're settled down making pizza. <laughs> it, it was great. Even the, and the, and the, the little girl was, was great too. Fantastic. Lulu. Yeah. She was, she was very, very good in that. I hope we see her again. So did you ever think that 30 years down the line, you'd still be stuck with, you know, working with the same people? 
doing the same thing. I didn't even dare hope. It's it's fantastic. I would, I, I don't think stuck is the word. <laughs> but it's, it's Star Trek is such a again a unique thing because I you know all the the with the original show with you guys I and mean, with Voyager you this is a thing that just never ends. You just you did the thing and now you have all these fans that have either watched it then or that grew up watching it. The fan base is reju- you know keeps growing. You know it's 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 interesting to watch you at shows and you in particular and 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 Lavar and and Brent and Marina it's almost like you have more people coming up to you each year at some of these shows than you did the year before and your fan base is growing and the people I'm watching people that watched you when they were adults I'm watching people that watched that watched you when they were kids growing up and I'm watch, I'm watching now younger people who you know, came in through a different show, either came in through Deep Space Nine or Voyager or even Enterprise and went backwards and came in. And people who are coming in now because of Discovery. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it's, I got to be honest, it's been a blessing to have my career rekindled by the new Star Treks. It didn't hurt that I learned how to do another craft. I mean, the directing has been fantastic for me. And when Discovery worked out and then the card worked out, and now there'll be a new one, and another one. And it's well, you di- you also direct you directed an episode of the Orville, right? I did, which and is fact- really the most like Star Trek. Yes, I directed a couple <laughs> of the Orvilles actually. Yeah, yeah. It's Seth was a huge Next Generation fan, and as I mean, this is all part of the publicity for that show. Too, they they he hired. Um, uh, James Conway and Robbie Duncan mm-hmm. McNeil and myself, who were all directors from Next Gen era, and he hired Brandon Braga, who's his lead writer with him, yep. who wrote our show, and Joe Vanosky, who wrote some of those great Star Treks, including the uh, Darmok, which I, I love. And he hired Marvin Rush, who's a cinematographer for most of this, our show, for most of the years of our show. So he really, really, really wanted to embrace the next gen, and it was part of the success. I think people expected Orville to be a little more absurd, and he ended up having some very serious sort of Roddenberry-esque stories to tell. I would I think, definitely agree. I think the first few episodes, they kind of struggled with the voice, but then, Orville. yeah, yeah, and then after they, after about four or five episodes, they really started to figure out what they were doing, and what the show was. And, you know, they, they got away from some of the, there was a little bit of the absurd in the very beginning. I mean, not, not full on family guy absurd, but I really think they, they, they got a really great voice now. Yeah, I agree. I think that it's, it's true that that's true with any show though, that you've got to give it, you've got to give it time. Look at our show. I mean, the first season was really bumpy. So somebody in the Orville needs to grow a beard. uh, No, the Orville's found this voice. Yeah, well, they, it, well, next gen, you had that bumpy first year. Then you go into a second season right off a writer strike, oh. and they're they're reusing old strips to, to just do something. So that was, but but it, it came around. It you know it it really hit on all cylinders. Yeah, it, it finally did in the third season. And then when we say the cliffhanger at the end of the third season with best of both worlds with uh, the board was probably as as strong as as it got. The scripts were great. The stories. The, the, the cliffhanger itself was as good as it gets. That was a time when there was no streaming and people right. really had to wait for the summer to come up to an end. That was painful. 
It was fantastic. Yeah. It's painful. It's like going to see Back to the Future 2, and then you have this cliffhanger, and you got to wait, mm-hmm. and it's like, well, oh, Empire Strikes Back. That was, that was awful. You get to Return of the Jedi. Speaking and yet, not- we survive. I don't know how. And speaking of non-Star Trek properties, Gargoyles being on Disney Plus is starting to get a little heat again. Have you have you seen or noticed this? I have heard this. Gargoyles always had a sort of a it was always sort of percolating yeah. with fans. I find at the at the conventions, like I think this is you'll find this true too. The uh, we were there because of Star Trek generally. And the second thing that they were most interested in, or at least the Trekkers, was Gargoyles. Or Absolutely. That, the audience, Absolutely. right? Mm-hmm. That's Absolutely. the second biggest uh, draw, certainly for Marina and myself. Yes. Mm-hmm. There's. Have you seen Marina's Wikipedia page? There's a great picture of her with a cosplayer. It's it's a great photo. But yes, I, I absolutely gargoyles is I especially with our shows where we have such a cartoon friendly event. Yeah, a lot of people that get excited about you and 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 Marina from that, and then we just had Frank Welker at our last show. Once you got past the 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 some of the, the like the preppy Star Warsy type stuff. The word got out, like, Gargoyles on Disney+, Plus, Gargoyles Disney+. Plus, And, yeah, it, it, it kind of set things on fire for a while. So, well, hopefully I, people will find that show, because there was a period, and I've always said it when people ask about the show, I thought Gargoyles might have been a little too smart for TV at that time, especially for after school. It was an after school 4 o'clock slot, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, yes. So many Shakespearean references, and it was darker than cartoons generally. It, it was... Uh, that was Greg Weissman's baby too, man. He's still trying to keep it alive. I know he, he he did he did a show with us a few years ago. If the Disney Plus thing can get it going again, either a movie or a reunion show or or anything, I mean, there's a lot of fans out there. I know. I know. When this when this when this dropped and this sort of uh, re sparked up a little bit, he did to go to his social media and he told it, "Hey, look, guys, if you want, start hashtagging it, start talking about it. Maybe we can fan this into a flame that yeah. Disney will take notice." I was trying to find a contact for Keith David yesterday because I've been watching Ken Burns' jazz, which Keith narrates most of. Yeah. And I was reminded of his his voice is even more resonant than uh, Michael Dorn's. So, what, so a lot of people come to these shows because they're nostalgic for you, right? They're nostalgic for Star Trek. They grew up watching this. This is something that's an important part of their childhood, their teenage years, even something they remember fondly. What are you nostalgic for? What am I nostalgic for? Like, what's the geek thing you're into? What's, what is something that you were like, this is something I remember fondly? That's one of the reasons I'm watching Ken Burns jazz. I was brought up in a house. My dad played jazz every night before dinner. And the, uh, he played Ellington or he played Billie Holiday or Sarah Vaughan or Pee Wee Russell, Coleman Hawkins. A lot of the players who are featured yeah. significantly... So I'm very nostalgic for for that. And baseball is a sport that I follow more closely than any other sport. And at a time when we have so much freaking time on our hands during this strike, wouldn't it be great if magically oh. we could see sports? Especially baseball, because it's oh, you know it could it's just so it's languid that we could right. you could we, just spend three hours. Just, exactly. You hoping for extra innings. Who's your yeah. team? I actually, oddly, 
I follow the Dodgers because I live in Los Angeles, and I follow the Red Sox because we have a camp in Maine. And I grew up as a Yankee fan, but I was raised north of Philly. So when I was in the Boy Scouts and elementary school, we used to go to to watch the Philly. So I got four teams, none of which you should be rooting for or against. It could and, be worse. I mean, I'm you know I'm a Mets fan. It it just doesn't get any worse than that. No, but the idea of being a Yankee fan and a Red Sox fan is just Oof, that's, anathema, yeah. anathema. It's hard to be a Mets fan. Yeah. It's a really hard. And Beltran going down and uh, Cora going down. The, this this uh, Houston Astro thing, if their suspension, which is going to last for the year, never happens because there's no baseball this year, this is going to go away. The cheating scandal is going to go away, but don't get me started. But this is this isn't a baseball game. Is Pete Rose on there somewhere with us? No, <laughs> no, no, no. We can have that's a much longer conversation for another. Is it ever? For, but, uh, yeah, but, uh, over drinks one night. Do you do? Do you do? You don't do sports conventions, do you? No, I don't do sports now. But you know, here's the, how how fans and fan culture has evolved. You can be on the geek side of the spectrum, and you can be a sports fan now. It's okay. It's not yes. mutually exclusive. It used to kind like of be Will, weird. Look at Will Wheaton. <laughs> Will Wheaton is a huge Kings fan. And the king of the geeks, really, the leader of us all. He he took the ball and ran with it, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Have you been watching <laughs> have you been watching Ready Room, the show that's after Picard? Yeah. Yes. He's really born to that interview format. He's so sensitive and aware and smart and clever and quick and informed. Well, he's a really, really smart guy. Yeah, and, he's uh, a wonderful man, too. I'm, I'm crazy about Will. You want to talk about somebody who took a lot of heat in the early days oh, from Wesley. fandom? Shut up, Wesley. That poor kid. I know. It was brutal. But he was one of us, though. I mean, I remember reading article interviews with him. He talked about, yeah, my favorite magazine is Fangoria. Mine, too. Hey, you know, and... Yeah, yeah. But he came through the other side, and he won. So at these shows, in, in all the years, is there ever been anyone that you got excited to meet? Another guest, another, just anyone that was there? That you're like, oh, wow, that's that's cool. Who did I fanboy on? Amy oh, uh, no, uh, David Tennant. <laughs> oh. Really? Oh, my God. My favorite doctor. And I, I just, I plotzed and I fanboyed on him. And it was just, it was embarrassing. So you're a Doctor Who fan? Well, I'm a David Tennant fan. And okay. I, like Matt, I like Matt Smith as well. But Tennant floored me. I thought he was fabulous. So that was kind of exciting. Have you seen his other stuff? Yeah. And I'm about to start that, what is that one called? I have it written down on my little to-do list. Deepwater Fell? Does that ring a bell? Deadwater Fell. No, I don't know that. Oh. I know him from Broadchurch. I mean, I'm he's great. Yeah, he's and he's a super nice guy. Yes. Absolutely. I we finally had him last year for the first time and he was just ridiculously sweet. Just with everyone. As are you as well. Uh, oh, come on. No, 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 no. You and you and your peers for all the time you guys have been doing this and the times I've introduced you on stage or or sat with you with some of you or just seen you at the tables. You guys still just give your fans 100%. And thank you for that. Because I won't name it. I've seen other guests of other things that I can see that they're on autopilot. And I can see they do it. Yeah. But when you guys get there, you guys are still giving it. And thank you so much for that. Because that 
that keeps us alive. That creates. Well, I, I, I think most of us feel that if you're not enjoying it, you should stop coming because it's a gift. It's a gift to us because of the excitement of the fans and what they've gone through to get there with their hard earned money. And they, you know, they share what Star Trek meant to them. And it's, you leave invigorated. You live, we leave having been given a gift. I mean, first of all, you make some money. It's great to see your friends, but you also are spiritually lifted by realizing that you were part of something that made people's lives better. Generally during very tough times, they, they tell stories about their family troubles or about drug and alcohol troubles or about yeah. PTSD and that somehow <clears throat> Trek helped them. It makes you, it's, it's humbling and it's kind of wonderful. So you've heard you've heard all this stuff over the years. Oh man, it, it, it's the uh, and it never ceases to surprise and it never ends. It is uh, you can count on that every weekend, no matter what part of the world you're in. Is there one particular fan interaction that has really resonated with you after all this time? There was a very powerful one that we were doing a panel, and the guy had both of his legs blown off in Afghanistan. Oof. And he uh, called it, he called himself, his nickname was Feet. Hmm. And he told the story and he, he was at the mic with his stumps in a wheelchair and he got up on it and he, and he made us cry. He just told us how important it was to him that the show helped him through what he'd been through. And we went, all of us on stage went down to hug with him. And it was a very, he expressed himself so clearly and so emotionally it made us, it made us cry, and it was a, it was a really powerful. I don't remember what town we were in, but we all still talk about that, that event, with him. Feet. So wow. That, Thank you for sharing. So that. on that on that note. So <laughs> on a on a baseball thing, something I, I just remembered. I don't know that you, if you've ever done. There's a show in Baltimore, Baltimore Comic Con, which is like the big show in Baltimore. It's more of a comic book show, but he, he's starting to bring in, you know, media guests. He, the guy who runs it, used to be the mascot for the Baltimore Orioles. No way. For years, he was the Orioles mascot. Guy's the biggest, biggest, biggest baseball fan you're ever going to meet. He's got some great stories about wearing that costume. You think Captain America was a Ooh. tough costume? You try being the Orioles mascot for a couple years. Going to events, having kids doing things on you. I bet. I remember one of the only times I ever asked for an autograph, I ran out of a restaurant behind Ernie Banks. Oh, wow. Wow. And Mr. Cub. And he, he was so nice. And he was so, he took time and he talked to me. And it was great. I saw Duke Ellington once. That was thrilling. Nice. Where did you see Duke? At the Newport Jazz Festival. It must have been just a few years before he died. And he was coming to the stage in his limousine and we were crowded around the street and he put the window down and everybody screamed at him. He said, dig it, dig it. The window went right back up. It's great. <laughs> so the last question I'm going to ask you. Yes, sir. Is you have, so you have had these people who come up to you and, and you've inspired them or you've given them. What inspires you? My kids, who are both spectacular. My wonderful wife, who's put up with me for 33 years, I think, saved my life. 
and generally the fact that I have the best job in the world on a good day when I go to work and you know work number one's Patrick or number one is Sonequa or number one is Noah Wiley and the rest of the company I, I I'm very blessed that when I go to work in the morning I always look forward to it so I'm inspired by the process how old are your children 24, 25, and 22, soon to be 23. All right. So if uh, if anybody wants, Jonathan is on Cameo. You can get – have you done a lot of those? Yes, I have. So you can go to Cameo, and Jonathan can do messages. Anything else in your future, uh, project-wise, that you're allowed to share with us? I've got three episodes of Discovery that have yet to air. I just finished this uh, new action-adventure comedy called The Astronauts, which is kind of wonderful. And looking forward to going back to Picard. As are we. As are we. All right, Jonathan. Patty, uh, Mike, this was great. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And live long and prosper. Jonathan, thank you.